and leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome back to another Thought and Leaders. So today we have got an exceptional leader and someone who actually makes a lot of people think, not just uh, in Europe, but around the world, about what the, um, the state of people's thoughts are, funnily enough, in terms of their attitudes and what their beliefs are and perceptions. So we have with us today an uh, amazing guy, Ben Page. Ben, hello. Good morning, afternoon. Good morning, good afternoon. Yes, now tell us, well, I think we all know about you, but just for those, I don't know, in some remote cave somewhere who don't know about you, give us a quick elevator pitch. All right, uh, the, what's the elevator pitch? Um, I'm, so I'm Ben, I uh, run Ipsos Mori in Britain and Ireland. Uh, I'm on the board of Ipsos globally. We're a large research company. I've been there about 33 years. Uh, we spend a lot of time looking at why people, why human beings do the things they do, uh, and why they don't always do what they say they will, both for governments but also for companies like Google, Shell, uh, the charity sector, pretty much the National Health Service, currently doing COVID nineteen testing in Britain. I mean, you name it. We're we're all about why people do the things they do and what what, what humans do and why. We almost plan our hopes together, or we'll have no more future at all. Uh, this time has been very, very weird. It's been what I call the Doctor Who time because we seem to have stepped into a weird TARDIS, which has reshaped time. How has time been for you? Well, we had some tip-offs because we've got uh, thousands of colleagues in China and they told us that your time in lockdown will pass much faster than you ever imagined. And yeah, it feels it probably feels like two or three, it probably feels like three or four weeks now actually i know it's, it feels i'm i know i'm on week 11 of staying at home because i do a podcast every week for the staff and i know i'm on week 11 this week so it must be my 11th week of sitting at home but it has you're absolutely right time has sort of compressed i think it's because we're just staying at home and doing and not going anywhere and doing the same thing every day pretty much and that that tends to make time seem to go faster it's it's partly why older people think time passes more quickly than younger people, because older people have seen seen more of life and done more things, whereas everything's newer to young people. So true, so true, Ben. Now, those of us who've been fortunate enough to have the uh, internet and, of course, remote working with the almighty Zoom and other other brands, I'm sure, are available. Um, it Time has, you know, it, it, it's still been, as you said, been quite stretched, but it's been bearable. But, of course, um, what about people on low incomes and some key workers? Uh, now, w- we know that uh, recently in the UK, um, people have been encouraged that if they can go back to work, they should go back to work. So they've been obliged, a lot of them, to to pack themselves back onto these trains just to ensure that they've got enough you know, money to keep the roof over their heads and stuff like that. So for them, I guess time has been very different. Sure. I mean, you know, if you're in a house in a garden and you've got the, you're a knowledge worker, work in a service industry, you can work from home. Uh, you know, not too bad. Of course, if you if your job involves driving a vehicle, delivering things, cooking, cleaning, etc., very very different. And although it is fair to say that roughly one in four workers in the private sector has been furloughed uh, during this period, so some of these people have had their eighty percent of their wages 
paid by the government, which is pretty extraordinary. Mm. At the same time, no, absolutely. You're living in a council flat with three kids. You've only got one laptop and you've got no outdoor space. Uh, my God, it's going to be tough, right? And the, you know, the existing inequalities in our society have only been exacerbated by COVID-19. And if, you know, if you look at the death rate, I mean, although it's true that you know, younger people are still relatively low risk from it, uh, there's a much higher death rate among sort of manual workers and people involved in transport services than there is among professionals, for example. Yeah. You often talk about the uh, loss of the future in uh, Western societies, and you talk about it especially since the crash of 2008, where I believe the the figure is 45% of the population expected but before COVID that their children would be poorer. Uh, Now, post-COVID, gosh, what do you think is going to happen in terms of people's perception of the future? I mean, it, it looks bleak, to be quite honest. Or, you know, most people are, a lot of people have started saving more money because they're anxious. Uh, the economy is predicted to shrink by up to 13%. And remember, in 2008, I think from memory, it only shrank by about 4.7%. So the loss of GDP this year is, is like nothing any of us will have ever seen before. Will it bounce back quickly? We just we just don't know. Uh, because this virus is going to be endemic and because people are still dying of it every day, there is a challenge that, as, in, as, as has happened in China and other countries that come out of lockdown, that, that people don't spend and don't go out as much for two reasons. One, because they're worried about the economic aftershocks, and two, and losing their job, and two, because, of course, they're worried about catching the virus. And so you get this sort of double whammy, uh, which means that consumer demand doesn't really come back. This scheme has been a world-leading economic intervention, supporting livelihoods and protecting futures. Seven and a half million jobs have been furloughed. Jobs we could have lost if we had not acted. Nearly a million businesses supported who could have closed shop for good. At the moment, um, the government's uh, massive intervention in the economy means that people are, you know, businesses that uh, may or may not have customers when things finally reopen are able to keep going and pay wages or or at least keep the staff going and not make people redundant. I think the question is, as the government withdraws its support, which businesses just turn out not to be viable in the new post-COVID world? and And then what are the ramifications of that? across you know across society but it no i'm afraid it was if if you were feeling pessimistic before covid-19 then you're not going to be optimistic about the economy after covid-19 quite frankly mm. What about from the point of view of planet, well, that was planet consumerism, but what about from the point of view of planet Earth in terms of of climate change and things like that? Do you think that this has been a great opportunity for us in a way? Well, I think many people all over the world have noticed the absence of pollution. You, You can hear the birds singing in my garden. Normally, I've got jumbo jets going over every few minutes. So, no, sure. I, th- I think, and, and there's a really interesting moment that we're approaching now. And there are some positive signs in the sense that you can see cities all over the West uh, saying that they don't want to go back to the same levels of traffic that they had before. Milan, many of the London boroughs, I think Paris, 
And, you know, it may be that it won't be like 2008. But remember, in 2008, carbon emissions shot up again after the recession and as, as, as we came out of the 2008 crash, because governments were so keen to resume economic activity at any cost. And so, you know, it's not, it's not guaranteed that we will see a new green reset, although personally, I would sort of hope for one. And it, I think in terms of public opinion, it is true that concern about climate change was much greater in, in 2020 than it was in 2008. Although, interestingly, of course, the, the, the immediate economic crash and COVID-19 have seen a, an immediate lowering of spontaneous anxiety about, about climate change. But certainly at, at, a, at a global level, we had much higher, you know, we had globally, it was about the one thing that everybody on this planet agrees with, that climate change is a, is a clear and present danger. So let's hope that there's a, there's a green reset and that it isn't just growth at all costs. And they'll be, even though we can't be in the same room. We can still pull together. And help those in need. Can you hear me? We want to get behind Fair Share. The food charity. And we're sorry, you go. And we're making it easy for us all to do our bit. To be a local hero. Co-op have pledged £1.5 million pounds worth of food to kick it off. You can donate money in store today. Or by texting meals to 70490 to give a tenner. Because even though we're apart, we, we can, can still, still help each other out. I'm gonna I'm gonna use a K word now, Ben, if I may. And the okay. K word is kindness. So you've got all these brands who have been telling me that this bank and that building society and this, I don't know, supermarket, everyone's telling me that they yeah. are kind and I've got to be kind. And we all, it, it reminds me of a hippie loving sometimes. I, I saw that interesting one. I think it was from the chief marketing officer at PepsiCo that says that, you know, brands are now all have to be about empathy rather than um rather than sort of i don't know price and you know taste and everything else in fairness i think you know societies all over the world have pulled together to get through this you've got many more people saying that they're contacting friends and family and relatives and indeed neighbors more often than they they, they had in the past in britain three quarters of a million people volunteering to give up their time to help the national health service you know, these are big things. And I, I think once we're back to complete normal, will it stick? Difficult to say. And, you know, we've only been in lockdown for a couple of months. To see a massive change in people's values, you would normally expect this, something like this to go on for much longer. It's, it's certainly made much more visible the people who we really rely on to get things done, uh, often not paid that much money. Uh, so you've got all the knowledge workers and the highly paid people at home safely and meanwhile people are getting by on the minimum wage or not much more working in supermarkets distribution uh you know cleaning etc and then and, there, and i think perhaps just perhaps there is some recognition that uh you know we need a slightly more equitable deal for those people in future uh you know the government has stepped in and put in a lot of money but at some point we may be asked to dip into our pockets we must now devote all our strength and resources to the completion of our tasks, both at home and abroad. Advance Britannia. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the King. You have spoken, I've heard you speak about this before, that after World War II, the practicalities of life changed dramatically, but people's underlining uh, values, that was a, that's a different thing. That takes a long time, doesn't it, for, for those to change? Yeah, I mean, we, we came out of World War II, and of course, we set up 
the National Health Service. We set up uh, comprehensive education, etc. So there were a whole set of things. But that was a six-year war in which 75 million people died globally. And although you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands are dying from COVID-19, it isn't World War II. We aren't all in it together in the way that actually, with the sort of social mixing that World War II forced on society. Let's just wait and see. We're too close to the trees to see the wood at the moment, quite frankly. Do you think that some companies will increasingly turn furloughs into excuses to shrink the uh, personnel um, footprints? If the work doesn't exist, uh, you know, then what are you going to do? And I think if you're running a chain of restaurants and you can't operate those with social distancing at anything like the same capacity that you had before, and, and given the margins in some restaurants, you might not even, I mean, quite a few of the restaurant chains have already gone bankrupt. Uh, absolutely, you will see. And I think this is my point, really, that the, the government's intervention in the economy, which is hugely welcome, has protected us from mass unemployment immediately. But if we are not resuming the same sort of business, if we can't operate businesses in the same way that we were doing before, then you will see a big adjustment of the economy towards home delivery, lots more, you know, lots more domestic stuff, much less going out, probably less travel. And you think uh, this is a and you think this is a long term thing? Well, in the, it's an eighteen month thing, and some of those. But if the business, if you were running a business that before COVID nineteen was highly leveraged and it, it had been you know, the, the business had been used to borrow a lot of money or had been had loads of debt loaded onto it for, for whatever reason, and you then find that the business model isn't really sustainable, well, then, you you know, you aren't going to be able to keep going. It's fine if you, if you, you know, if, you, if you've got huge amounts of debt and you can't service it and, you, you know, you were just about servicing it under your previous business model, and now, you know, your revenues are going to be hit by, you know, 50% or more. Well, you ain't going to be able to do it. So mm. no, that's the risk that I think we see. And I think you can, you can. I mean, I, I talk as somebody running a business, and I'm doing. We're doing everything we can to protect people's employment. If you've got, say, I don't know, thirty people dedicated to working for one client, and they're in a sector that is very badly affected, and they just say, you know, that work you were doing for us before furlough and before anything, well, it's just not coming back ever. Then you've got to decide: can I get those thirty people to do something else, or maybe they don't have anything else to do? You know. This is a terrible time, I would suspect, to be a graduate trying to enter the workforce. Um, and it's probably not a great time to be looking for a job. Yeah. Can leaders instill trust in a post-COVID era? At a time of crisis, what you will see is the public uh, flocking to support politicians. So all across Western Europe, you saw, and indeed in New Zealand, you've seen very significant rises in support for people like uh, Angela Merkel or Macron in France, Conte in Italy, and even Boris Johnson in Britain. The difficulty for politicians was is that doesn't always last. When it, you know, when when it's very clear and there's been a there's a sort of an immediate crisis, you will see this surge in support. The challenge is how do you maintain that increased level of trust and satisfaction as you come out of a, 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 the immediate crisis and perhaps have to make difficult choices? But certainly that's there. And I think in private business, as a, as a CEO, I'm communicating far more often with my staff in a way that I couldn't normally, probably I'll start doing it now. 
Well, I get, I get what you're saying that in terms of leadership, it's about being there for people. It's about transparency, empathy, trusted communications. But you also spoke about there that you, uh, your own organization, using things like remote uh, working stuff like Zoom and so on and so forth, you're able to, you know, be there increasingly, in fact, more than you thought that you would be there. But the thing is, is that in other organizations, do you think there's that this kind of working, this kind of remote working is leading to macro management? At which point does remote working in, in terms of management become a bit intrusive? Well, I think if you're trying to log, if you're trying to log on people's, look at people's hours or how many keystrokes they're making on their laptops or when they're active on, you know, on their email or something and use that to try and assess their productivity or something, then frankly, uh, that way um, isn't a pretty good way to go. I think the tools, the tools that allow you to have conversations with a thousand people at once are things that probably we should have used before, but for all, you know, for all sorts of reasons we didn't, and we'd like doing things face-to-face. I used to do a, a, a meeting every three months face-to-face with people. I would travel to Oxford, and now I'm talking to people every single week about the business in a 20-minute talk, and I have you know, nearly everybody, nearly everybody joins, um, and people afterwards say they like it, and it's, you know, this, this sort of informal news and fun stuff as well, but it's it's trying to hold things together. So I think you can become, a, bizarrely, the crisis actually lets you become a more visible leader because we're using the new technology. We're just interestingly polling our staff to find mm-hmm. out if they want us to continue with this as we come out of lockdown. But on the other hand, we used to have to cram everybody into meeting rooms. And uh, of course, we won't be able to do that again for a very long time. So probably we'll be sticking to broadcasting webinars for a while, I imagine. You gotta give a little, take a little, and let your poor heart break a little. That's the story of, that's the glory of love. Now, governments have been ploughing money in, uh, to prop up uh, economies. But, you know, with Keynesian uh, economics, you know, this tends to bite back, doesn't it? Well, I mean, exactly. But this is where we come on to something, and I'm, I'm not an economist, but what's called modern monetary theory. And this means that if your debts are holding pounds and you just owe people pounds, if you're Her Majesty's government, who are, after all, the lender of last resort, then all you need to do is print some more money. And the argument is that unlike in previous episodes of printing money, this won't, in this instance, lead to massive inflation. Uh, which has some benefits of cancelling out debts. But anyway, let's not, let's not go there. Western governments are going to run deficits where they spend much more than their income for some time, and deficits of a size that we just haven't seen for, you know, since, the, since World War II in some cases. And the question is, will the, will the people who lend us money as a country want to go on doing so? And so far, as Britain has borrowed, you know, billions more than in the 2008 financial crisis. It's really interesting to look at the numbers. What's happened is that it it appears that at the moment, as far as I'm aware, government debt auctions apparently have three times more people willing to lend us the money uh, at very low interest rates than we actually need to, to fund the things that we want to do. So, it appears at the moment that the world is willing to accept this sort of, you know, low in a low inflation world, despite governments borrowing huge amounts of money. Uh, London Transport has uh, got a boost that they needed. 
But of course, that has meant that uh, in return, the government wanted uh, greater influence uh, in terms of being on the board there. So do you think that uh, this is the start of bigger government control in, in, in our lives? Yeah, well, I mean, we already have the government, you know, the government is uh, telling you when you can, can can or can't leave your house and where you can or can't go and all this sort of thing. We're going to have governments that are borrowing a lot more, that are spending a lot more. I mean, the government is currently effectively employing one in one person in four employed in the private sector in Britain. I mean, this is, you know, pretty phenomenal stuff. So, no, I think we're going to have much more muscular and interventionist governments uh, of whatever their sort of nominal political colour. And this will need to go on for some time. So you're going to see a bigger government, a more interventionist government. And actually, the public tends to support that. They want uh, you know, governments to, to do things. And one of the trends that's been most clear over the last decade has been a rising proportion of people who say that public spending should go up, even if it means taxes go up, and a, purport- and a rising proportion of people who say they're worried that government won't be activist enough. Well, now they've got an activist government on steroids, so I hope they're happy. This is all about change. What a, what a change uh, the world has, has witnessed. You have often spoken about the idea of, first of all, recognising that you need to change, then having the capacity to change, and then having the, uh, the political willingness to change. Or will it really go back to what Hegel once said, that the only thing that man learns from history is that man learns nothing from history? History doesn't repeat itself. The circumstances are always different. And What's interesting about history, and the same as science fiction, is that both historians and science fiction writers write about things, whether they're writing about the future or the past, they write about the things that interest and concern them in the present. So in the 60s, as we have civil rights movements all over the world and you know, the war in Vietnam, you get a whole lot of interest in peasant history rather than the great men history. You know? So it sort of reflects, uh, it reflects our current preoccupations. So no, history, history doesn't, it doesn't mean that history doesn't teach us anything. We can certainly see mistakes that have been made in the past. Um, you, you know, it certainly, teach, it certainly teaches you things, but it's not, you can't, you can't just go and, re- this is not a replica of the 1918 flu epidemic or 1919 flu epidemic or something like that. It's a completely different society. Uh, you know, we don't know, but no, we, we can, we can, you know, we can learn things, but it's not something that you can just go and uh, look, look it up and, oh, yes, do this, because it clearly doesn't work like that. Look for the signals of change that you can see all around you, but don't think that everything is going to change overnight. If we were all told tomorrow that we could all go back to being how we were at the beginning of February, I'm, I think you know virtually everybody in the country would just seize that, despite all of the problems that we had at the beginning of February. So we don't know uh, how many of these changes are longer term and will stick as, as things go back, but it does look like we've got a pretty painful recession, a big adjustment to the economy, at least until the vaccine is here or people's fear of the virus has, has diminished enough for them to go back to living in the way they used to live in terms of going to crowded theatres, cinemas, restaurants, hanging out in, in crowds. I mean, people, that's a, we're a social animals. And, been, and until we feel comfortable in that sort of setting or on Oxford Street on a busy Saturday, uh, you know, I, I think the economy is going, to, is going to suffer. So hopefully we'll have muscular government led by people with enough vision and imagination to come up with some maybe in to encourage us to do the things that we always needed to do. But uh, unfortunately, the one thing history does teach us is don't bet on it. So true. So I know that your organisation is always looking at uh, ever-developing trends. So how can they contact you, contact your organisation, Brett? 
Sure, just email ben.page at ipsos.com uh, and uh, or find me on social media somewhere on Twitter and uh, we'll we'll try and help. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, and do sign up for, our, you know, we have a weekly newsletter, there's, there's all sorts of things and it's nearly all free. So why not? Nothing not to like. Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. Right. Well, hopefully uh, I'll meet you uh, after all of this. We'll have a cup of coffee together. That was absolutely fascinating. And as I said at the very uh, top of this interview, it would give us uh, food for thought. It certainly did do that. So until next time, everyone, take care. Remember that business is in your hands and what you do with the world. Let's hope it's going to be something that uh, it's going to make it just a a little bit of a, a better place. Speak to you soon. would like to contribute to a future program please email reinvent at me.com that's reinvent at me.com <laughs>